This morning, our sermon text will be from Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 to 28. These are the words of God. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Our gracious Heavenly Father, please open your word by the power of your Spirit. Bring it to our minds and to our hearts and to our wills that we would be transformed to the likeness of Christ and would be to the praise of the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, two weeks ago when we were last in Genesis, we were in Genesis chapter 21. And we considered Ishmael and Isaac and what led to Ishmael's expulsion. And we saw that it all came down to Ishmael's failure to see with the eyes of faith that Isaac was a God-given, miraculously born son of promise who was a type, that is, a living picture of the promised seed of Abraham through whom all the promises would be fulfilled and in whom all those united to him by faith would inherit the promises. This is what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, I want us to take some time over several sermons to focus in on this theme because it is key to understanding so much else in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New It is the key to understanding the hostility of the Jewish establishment toward Jesus and the church. And you can see in our text that Paul says that the persecution of the Christians by the the Jewish establishment in Jerusalem was the exact same hostility that Ishmael manifested toward Isaac and for the exact same reasons. Faith in the promised seed on the one hand, and no faith in the promised seed on the other. 
This is also the key to understanding the great debate that rages across the pages of the New Testament with the Jewish establishment on one hand, arguing that the way one inherits the promises of God is by being a loyal member of the covenant. And the apostles, on the other hand, saying, no, one inherits the promises of God by faith in the promised seed. And the covenant was given to cultivate that faith. Then you have the Jewish establishment responding, well, if that is true, then God has gone back on all of his promises. And the apostles answered, no, it's the total opposite. God has fulfilled every single one of his promises through the promised seed, Jesus Christ. And all who believe in him inherit the promises. That's what it's always been about. And so you see both sides affirm the covenant. But one side says the covenant is what it's all about. The other side says no. Faith in the promised seed is what it's all about. And the covenant was given precisely to nurture and to cultivate that faith. Now, this is why you see the apostles in the New Testament constantly going back in the Old Testament, going back to Abraham, going back beyond Abraham. You can see, for example, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it takes us all the way back to Cain and Abel which means it really takes us back to Adam and Eve because you have to understand what was going on with them in order to understand what's going on with Cain and Abel. But they're constantly going back to show that it's always been about faith in the promised seed. And the covenant and the covenant sign and the covenant law were all given to cultivate that faith to strengthen that faith, to constantly point forward to the promised seed and to nurture that faith in him. So let's go back and let's take a look. Let's start with the first promise of the gospel in the Bible, which comes immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is God speaking. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise, literally crush, your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here we have the very first promise of redemption, the very first gospel promise. And interestingly, this is a promise that is not made directly to Adam and Eve. This promise is made to Satan. The very first gospel promise in the history of the world is made to the evil one. Of course, Adam and Eve are right there. They hear this, and so they know this is something for them to grab hold of. This is something for them to believe and trust in. And you see here how it's really two sides of the same coin. Trusting in the God who is making the promise and trusting in the one that he promises to send, the one, the promised redeemer who is to come, who is to accomplish salvation, that's two sides of the same coin. 
You really can't trust in or believe in the God who is making the promise without trusting in the promised Redeemer who is to come and accomplish salvation. They are one and the same. And we know here that the serpent, the one actually speaking through the serpent, which was an animal, is Satan or the devil. Revelations 12 verse 9 tells us that. It refers to the serpent of old, that is the serpent in the Garden of Eden, who is called the devil and Satan. So, this is the very first gospel promise, and we need to understand that what God is promising here, that this promised redeemer, the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent, what he is promising is that this redeemer is going to completely destroy not only the evil one, but all of the evil that he has brought into the world. First John 3, verse 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That is the most succinct statement of the gospel you are going to find anywhere. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Well, what were the works of the devil? Jesus himself teaches us that they were three main works. Number one, lying. John 8:44. the devil is a liar and the father of it, the father of lies. Satan lied to Eve by accusing God of lying. The very first lie was a false accusation against God for lying. Genesis 3, 5. Satan says to Eve, God knows that in the day you eat of it, the fruit of the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What he's saying to Eve in so many words is that you cannot trust God. He does not have your best interest in mind. He has his own selfish interests in mind, which are not in line with your interests. So the first work of the devil is lying by accusing God of lying. The second work of the devil is murdering. John 8:44 again. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. By lying to Eve and getting her to eat of the fruit and to give the same to her husband, thus getting him to eat, Satan murdered them both and the human race with them because he immediately severed them from communion with God, which is life itself. Jesus himself says in John chapter 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, that is the Father, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing the living God, fellowship with the living God, that is life itself. So he has severed them from the life of God. He has murdered them spiritually, and he has made their physical deaths only a matter of time. The third work of the devil is enslaving. By bringing Adam and Eve and their progeny under the reign of sin and death, Satan effectively brought them under his control. For as fallen sinners, they will now, from now on, have a natural bent toward animosity toward God, toward autonomy from God. 
which makes people then very, very easy for the devil to manipulate to his own purposes. It's not saying that Satan takes over people's wills so that they no longer have any thoughts or wills of themselves. It just means that their natural bent is right along the same rebellious lines as his, makes it very easy for him to manipulate people. And this is why you see, uh, for example, Herod and Pilate, who were enemies, we're told in the Gospels, they suddenly become friends during the trial of Jesus. On that day of all days, these political enemies became friends because it served Satan's purposes in order to get Jesus on the cross. Luke 23, verse 12. And this is why Paul in 2 Timothy 2.26 speaks of unbelievers as having been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And so Jesus, once again in John 8.44, tells the Jewish leaders, you are of your father, the devil. And then he explains how it is that he knows this. He says, for the desires of your father you want to do. In other words, they were plotting to kill him. That's not the will of the heavenly father. That's the will of the evil one. And he's enunciating the principle. We were created in the image of God, which means we were created not only to reflect God in terms of capacities, we were created to do what your image does in the mirror, which is whatever you do, your image does. It imitates you. That's what we were created to do, to imitate the Father. Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, you profess God as your Father, but that's not the one you imitate. You're trying to kill me. You're imitating your father, the devil. Whoever you imitate is the one you are claiming as father. And so these are the three works of the devil, lying, murdering, and enslaving. Now, as we understand this, it it helps us begin to see that Adam and Eve's sin in the garden was much more than simply crossing some sort of arbitrary boundary, something that had arbitrarily been placed off limits. You see, what was at stake with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was that it was an opportunity for Adam and Eve to demonstrate that they got the first law of true wisdom and discernment so that they could rule in God's name and administer justice in the earth. And that first law is the one that Jesus himself stated when he was tempted. Remember, Jesus was tempted also over food, prohibited food. But whereas Adam and Eve had the tree of life and all the other trees that they could freely eat from, there was only one tree that was off limits. With Jesus, all food was off limits for 40 days and 40 nights. Because you see, Jesus is what the Bible calls the last Adam. That is, he is the eschaton Adam. He is the final Adam. He is the eternal Adam. And so it is necessary that he be tempted in the same way. It is necessary that Jesus, the Son of God, demonstrate that he gets the first law of true wisdom and discernment. 
And so when Jesus is tempted, he says to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 4. What Jesus is saying is that there is a food that is more fundamental than food. There is a bread that is more fundamental than bread. And it is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Apart from that, we have no ability to rule in God's name. We have no ability to discern wisdom, justice, righteousness, and to apply it in the earth. But even deeper than that level of of demonstrating that we get what it's all about was the loyalty, the gratitude, the love, and the trust which they owed toward God himself by virtue of everything that he had already done for them and everything that they already knew for sure about the living God. What are some of the things that they already knew for sure about God? Number one, they knew that God had created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, all blessed, all very good, and he sustains all of it, none of which he needed. So that tells you a lot about who God is right there. Second of all, they knew that God had made them in his own image so that they could know God, that they could reflect his character, that they could rule over the earth in his name, none of which God needed. In other words, it wasn't for him. It was for them. They knew this. They knew that God had made them male and female for one another as husband and wife, that he had joined them together in marriage. Eve is called Adam's wife before the fall, that he called them to share and experience his creational work by having children who would be born also in the image of God, again, none of which God needed. It was not for him. It was for them. They knew that God had planted this beautiful Garden of Eden, that God would come and fellowship with them there, that they had been given freely to eat of the tree of life and the other trees save for one. Once again, none of which God needed. It wasn't for him. It was for them. They also knew that the serpent was a beast of the field that had been placed under their rule and authority. And that whoever was speaking through the serpent had established absolutely zero track record of love and care and faithfulness to them. All of that they knew beyond the shadow of a doubt. When we understand that and see that their their, uh, love in return to God, their gratitude for God for all that he had freely done for them, before asking them to do anything in response, we start to see that Adam and Eve's sin was much more than simply crossing an arbitrary boundary. It was personal ingratitude. It was personal betrayal on a massive scale. 
because of their sin, and specifically Adam's, because he was acting in a representative capacity as covenant head over the human race. Because of this sin, Satan could come into the throne room of God and truthfully charge, Adam believed my word, not yours. Adam did my will, not yours. Adam imitated me, not you. By all rights, Adam is my son, not yours. And because you have placed the earth under him, by all rights, the human race and the earth belong to me. This is why we see Satan, when he tempts Jesus, offer him all the kingdoms of the world, and then he says, this has been given to me. And the word he uses there means something that has been judicially conferred by a higher authority. This has been given to me, and I give it to whom I wish. He had a legal claim to all of these things by virtue of the sin of Adam. So we see in this light then that the the original sin of man, Adam and Eve, was intensely personal. It wasn't abstract. It wasn't arbitrary. It involved ingratitude, a lack of love. It involved betrayal. It was, in fact, spiritual adultery. Understanding that, we should then expect that the redemption of man will be equally personal. And this is where faith in this promised Redeemer comes in. This is going to take a personal and radical salvation to be delivered. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, that is God the Son, likewise shared in the same. This is a personal salvation. He shared in the same. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This salvation is personal. He has to step in personally. And we can see then why Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. This is a personal salvation. Christ did not come to make salvation possible for a hypothetical group of nameless, faceless people. He came to make salvation sure for actual people with names and faces. This is what Paul is celebrating in Galatians 2.20. The fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he knew your name. It is a personal salvation. Now that's what a Redeemer does. If you're in a situation in which you are helpless to help yourself, the Redeemer is one who delivers you personally by taking your place. 
He pays your debt which you are helpless to pay because He takes it on as His own debt. He satisfies the judgment of condemnation which you are helpless to satisfy. You are helpless to get out from under because He takes it on Himself. He steps into your captivity and then He breaks the bonds of your slave master's hold upon you so that you are set free. There's nothing abstract about what a Redeemer does. So you see now why saving faith from the very beginning has involved not only faith in God who made the promises, but also in the promised Redeemer to come. Because one of the things we're going to see in the Bible is that they are one in the same. We're going to see as we go forward more and more that the God who is appearing to all of these different believing saints along the way is specifically God the Son. It's specifically the one who is going to come and is going to become flesh and blood like us in the person of Jesus. It is God the Son who is making the promises. It is God the Son who is going to come and fulfill the promises. It is God the Son as the God-man, Jesus, who's going to inherit the promises. And it is Him who is going to give us the promises in union with Him by faith. So, let's look at how then the earliest believers manifested that faith. Let's start with Adam and Eve. First of all, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, we have Adam, this is right after the fall, right after the promise of redemption, Adam calls his wife's name Eve. That means life. He calls her life, and it explains because she was the mother of all living. But at this time, she had neither conceived nor borne any children. In fact, there's no record of them having had any relations at this point. Upon what basis then is he calling his wife's name life? On the basis that she's the mother of all living. It's on the basis of God's promise, you see, in the coming seed who is, will come through the woman. That it's on that basis, it's on the basis of faith, specifically in the coming one, that Adam names his wife life and declares her to be the mother of all living. Also, it says in verse 21, that the Lord God made tunics of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, we know prior to this that they had taken fig leaves and tried to cover themselves with vegetation. God then makes tunics of skin. In other words, animals are dying. The blood of animals is shed, and God is covering them. So there's some important theology here already being taught to them. Number one, you can't cover yourself. You can't take your sin away. That's something you're helpless to do. God himself must act to do that. And the way he's going to have to act to do that is going to involve the shedding of blood, somebody else's blood. All of that is clear at this point. Adam and Eve are happy to have God clothe them. That shows faith right there. And then we have in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Adam knew his, uh, his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. 
Now, what does she say the very first time she conceives and bears a child? She doesn't say, I have acquired a son. She says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. The Lord has given me this child. Now, it's quite likely that they thought or at least were hoping that this one would be the promised seed who would redeem them. Now, it's going to be clear as time goes along that that is not true. It's someone else that they have to hope in. And so we then come to the very next generation of Cain and Abel. How did Abel show faith in the promised seed, and how did Cain fail to show the same? Genesis 4, verse 3 says, In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now, it's very common among modern theologians for them to say that there was nothing really different or significant about the different offerings that Cain and Abel brought, because they just reasoned that, well, Cain was a farmer, so naturally he's going to bring the fruit of his livelihood, and and Abel was a shepherd, so he's going to bring the fruit of his livelihood. And they point out that under the law of Moses, when all of these things were specified in great uh, detail, um, a grain offering is one of the offerings that someone can bring. So they reasoned that the only problem with Cain is that he didn't have a good attitude. That was really the only difference between him and Abel. Here's the thing. Under the law of Moses, you could not bring a grain offering by itself. That's the key. It had to come on the back of an animal sacrifice. Then you could bring a grain offering on the back of the blood sacrifice, never alone. Furthermore, it tells us in Hebrews 11, verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. It's not just the heart that's different between them. It is the sacrifice, the heart, and the faith, or the lack thereof, is being manifested in what offering they are bringing. He brought a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which, through his sacrifice, he obtained witness that he was righteous through the sacrifice. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. What he's saying is that it's clear that even though we don't have God's instructions recorded for us, God had given prior instructions. He had also, we know for sure, given them a prior example by clothing Adam and Eve with the animal skins. That is a blood sacrifice there pointing forward to the Redeemer. And we also have, um, you know, we already see in, in the creation week the principle that we are supposed to imitate God. God took six days to create the heavens and the earth, and he rested on the seventh. He doesn't need six days to create the heavens and the earth. He can do it all just like that. He doesn't need to rest 
not in the way we do. He doesn't have to rest up. He doesn't get tired. He's going to rest in the sense of rejoicing in his works. But we find out much later on in the Bible that we're supposed to follow that pattern. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. For in six days God created the heavens and the earth, but then rested the seventh. It's like pay attention. God's not doing this stuff for him. He's doing it for us. And so when God makes animal tunics through the death of these animals and clothes Adam and Eve, it's the same principle. Pay attention. I created you to be my image, that is, to imitate me. And so Abel is bringing the sacrifice he is because specifically of his faith in the promise of the Lord and in the promised Redeemer who is being pictured through this offering. Cain, by bringing a grain tribute by itself, not on the backs of an animal sacrifice, is basically saying, I don't need you to cover my sin. I don't need a redeemer. I can just come and worship you. I can come and relate to you without all that. So this is very specifically a rejection of the need of a Redeemer and a rejection of faith in the Redeemer. Genesis 4, verse 5, Cain was very angry that Abel and his gift specifically is received, whereas Cain is not. He's very angry. His countenance falls. The Lord says to Cain, there's another thing we need to pick up on here, is that Cain had the perfect pastor, God himself. The perfect pastor who always knew with absolute wisdom exactly what the situation was and exactly what Cain needed to hear. Why are you angry, God asks. Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you do according to my example and my instructions, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, if you do what you've done, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you. It wants to consume you. But you must rule over it. You must master it. How do you do that? By trusting in what God has told you to trust in, and bringing the offering which acknowledges your need of redemption by blood, sacrifice. And then we're told tragically in verse 8, Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Now, the thing is, Abel hasn't done a thing to Cain. Abel has just believed And he has obeyed and he has worshipped God based on his word. Cain's real problem is with God. Cain's real problem is rejecting the idea that he needs this kind of radical salvation that will require another one to come and to step into his situation and to deliver him in this radical way. He's saying he doesn't need that. He can just have his relationship with God. He says, I know who the one true God is. I know who God is. I can come in fellowship with him on my own. Now, maybe I need a little helping hand here or there. 
But God has made a way. I don't need this Redeemer to come. You see the difference. So Cain's real anger is at God himself. That's the one he really wants to kill. But he can't kill God. So he does the next best thing. He kills the one who reminds him of God. And he kills his brother Abel. But you see already in the very next generation after Adam and Eve, you see this hostility that we we see between Ishmael and Isaac. We see it in the New Testament between the Jewish establishment and Jesus and the church. We see that, and we see this same fundamental argument between those who say, well, sure, God's been gracious to us. He's given us the covenant, and he's given us the covenant sign, and he's given us the covenant law, and that's what it's about. Based on that alone, just being a member of the covenant, just having the covenant sign, just having the covenant law and being loyal to those things, that gives us the basis of our relationship with God and it gives us a right to inherit his promises. You see that versus the faith that says, no, what this is really about is the promised one to come. It's about faith in the promised one to come. It's about the radical redemption that one must accomplish on my behalf. And the covenant and the covenant sign and the covenant law are all great blessings, but they're not what it's all about. They're there to cultivate faith in the coming one. They constantly point to the coming one and they are there to nurture us and to cultivate the faith which is really the key. You see the difference. That's the conflict that we are going to see. We see it between Cain and Abel. We're going to see it throughout the Bible all the way into the New Testament. And as we go forward, we're going to see this is why so many parts of the New Testament are confusing. They're hard to understand because it's the middle of a huge, raging debate with all kinds of confusion on the ground over what has God been up to from the beginning. That's really what it's about. Who inherits God's promises? Well, thanks be to God that in Christ we inherit every single one of God's promises Because he is the promised seed of the woman. He is the promised seed of Abraham. He is the promised seed of David. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.